About November in the year 1581, in the marshes of Dengue Hundred, in the county of Essex, there suddenly appeared an infinite and prodigious number of mice, which almost covered the whole superficies of the marshes, treading and gnawing the grass by the roots, spoiling and tainting the same with their venomous teeth, in such sort that the cattle that grazed thereon were struck with a murrain, and many died thereof, which vermin by all the policy of man could not be destroyed, till at last it came to pass that there flocked together all about the same marshes a great number of owls, whereby they were shortly after delivered from the vexation of the mice. Hi, I'm Alexa Sand. And I'm Ian McGinnis. And this is Real Fantastic Beasts. Because we believe that learning about animals and history and literature and art helps us understand our place among our fellow creatures today. And as you might guess, our theme today, what is it, Alexa? Mice and rats. And how did we end up with this topic? Well, we were kind of tired of all these glamorous creatures that we've been talking about, and we wanted to go in a totally different direction. So vermin. Vermin. The, the most humble, the smallest, the, the least glamorous creatures of all. And we're putting rats and mice together because they were often understood as different versions, different sized versions, really, of the same animal. They, there was a lot of conflation of the two. Well, they do look a lot alike. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so they're pretty workaday animals, but I think it's fun to consider what is actually fantastic about them. And I mean, your story kind of opens the door to to that. Wait a minute, mice, venomous teeth? I mean, tell me about this story. Is it true? And what's the source? Well, it's, it's sort of true-ish. That is to say, there are lots of stories throughout the period of large numbers of mice appearing randomly. I don't know about the resolution where the owls show up for this this passage. The venomous teeth is is fairly common. the The fact that they appeared so often, uh, or in sort of in large numbers, made people think that mice could generate spontaneously. That is to say, they didn't need uh, sexual reproduction; they could just somehow emerge spontaneously from from substances. And that idea for mice persists for a really long time. There's a guy named Van Helmont who is, I guess we would call him a scientist. I mean, he's the one who came up with the word gas that we use today. So he's he's thought of as an early person in the sort of the science of, of gases. But he says, uh, and this is, this is quoting Van Helmont, if a soiled shirt is placed in the opening of a vessel containing grains of wheat, the reaction of the leaven in the shirt with the fumes from the wheat will, after approximately 21 days, transform the wheat into mice. So that's what he says. Fascinating. <laughs> I don't want to know what that shirt smells like. Um, in a way, the whole story and the, and the sort of belief in this spontaneous generation ties us back to a variety of not just medieval fantasies, but like medievalizing fantasies, you know, the, the rodents of unusual size from the Princess Bride. There's no such thing. <laughs> um, and, and particularly this idea of these kind of swarming rodents relates to, you know, probably the most famous folk 
tale about rats and mice ever, which is the Pied Piper of Hamelin. You know that story, right? The Pied Piper, that the town of Hamelin in, in Germany has this problem. They're overrun by rats or mice. And so they hire this guy, this piper, to, um, to get rid of the rats and lead them out of town. Because this is kind of part of a whole fantasy, medieval fantasy, actually, about uh, rats and mice that you could, um, that, that they responded to music and poetry and that you could sort of like, music and poetry could be used as sort of uh, vermin control strategies. So the Pied Piper is supposed to lead all of the um, rats out of town by um, playing, playing his, his pipe. music. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um and, and I mean, the story goes that there's this real historical incident in 1284 where the town elders of Hamelin in, in Germany said, well, okay, we're going to like get rid of the rats uh, Wait, by hiring this, is this real? piper. Well, you know, it's fantastic and also sort of real. So far, so good. If you believe that music will entice the rats out of town, I can see, it, uh, you know, it's a reasonable strategy for the town fathers to say, oh, yeah, we're going to hire this guy. And he claims to be able to basically fulfill this function of rat catcher. But for whatever reason, they didn't pay him. And so he used his same strategy, his pipe playing, to lead the children of the town away. And wait, wait a minute. Doesn't this mean that children are a bit like rats? Yeah, they swarm. <laughs> they swarm. <laughs> Um, so, and I mean, this, this story about the Pied Piper of Hamlin, whether or not based in a real historic incident, um, and by the way, the rats don't really enter into the story until 1384. Um, before that, it's, that's the first time it's written down that, that, you know, the sort of backstory where he charmed the rats and pulled them out of town and then wasn't paid and then went back for the children. Um, the original story that you find in there's that like for example a stained glass window from around 1300 that depicts this piper just kidnapping the children, no motive provided. He just does it because he, he's a bad guy, I guess, or maybe because it's a kind of figure for sin. Um, so the kids actually come first. Well, that's interesting because it means the the rats are being written in afterwards by implication they're 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 right. they're being wrapped up in this story of blame after the fact and for no particular reason which we i think we'll see again in our discussion yeah, other than other than that it makes it more plausible because they're such real creatures it lends a a fig leaf over the absurdity of the story anyway i mean this idea that that poetry or music could charm rodent vermin is not unique to Germany. It's also found in Ireland, where there's a story about these bards. Uh, this is actually Ben Johnson, so more your era than mine. But there's this story about uh, bards who charm or rhyme rats to death. They actually kill rats through poetry. Well, that appears in Shakespeare, too. Yes. There's not a lot of original material here. It's one of these things like everybody knows in Elizabethan England that Irish rats can were, were killed with verse, but there isn't, you know, the original, like, where's the original story for that? It's really, it's a bit hard to track down. It is attributed sometimes to St. Patrick, but that's by yeah. St. Patrick 
drove the snakes out of Ireland. Right. As well. So, like, they just right. added, oh, it must be St. Patrick, because he would do that. And then there's another, another uh, like, Irish poet who's attributed as sort of having done this thing. But there's no, like, original story that they're all referring. It's like a right. urban, it's, it's a, one of those urban legends that kind of just emerges. But I will say that, like, you do see in, for example, in the Book of Kells, you see a kind of fascination with mice. And you see them, particularly at the bottom of this one page that has the monogram of Christ, the Cairo Iota page, very, very famous page, sort of art history textbook page, it has a little uh, figure with these two mice who are chewing on a Eucharistic wafer. And there are cats behind them who are kind of stepped on their tails. And then on top of the cats are two rats biting the cats. And much ink has been spilled over what this all means. I mean, one theory is that it depicts an actual nuisance caused by mice in monasteries. And the other theory, and they're not mutually exclusive, is that it kind of alludes to a whole theological debate concerning the nature of the Eucharistic host, sort of at what point is it the body of Christ and at what point is it not? And in what senses is it? And is it not the body of Christ? That's um, why it turns into the mouse test in the Reformation, where, you know, the, what's so the there's mouse a Protestant, test? The, the, well, it's the, it's the, it's about the nature of the Eucharist. So Anne asks you a very sad story of a young woman who was martyred. They're interrogating her and they're trying to ferret out her, her beliefs and you get at the beliefs by asking about the mouse in the Eucharist, right? Because depending on whether yeah. you believe and uh, how how what you believe about the transubstantiation, whether it turns into the actual body and blood of Christ, can hinge on your answer as to what happens when the mouse eats it. So it's like it's the ah. mouse test. Yeah, I mean it was a major theological issue. Okay, so this is Aquinas. He says. Even though a mouse or a dog were to eat the consecrated host, the substance of Christ's body would not cease to be under the species so long as those species remain, and that is, so long as the substance of bread would have remained, just as if it were to be cast into the mire. So essentially, even if a mouse or a dog is eating your Eucharistic wafer, it's still Christ's body, and it which is. was not yeah. the majority opinion. Um, until he wrote this. And so, but it's interesting because then he sort of deals with the whole issue of like, so uh, what are the implications of that? But he says it's not sacramentally consumed because the animal is not rational. So the so, mouse doesn't go to heaven. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, and of course, it's not really about the mouse, it's about the host. But it is interesting to me that like it's always a mouse eating the host that is kind of brought up here. And sometimes, you know, this gets really, really literal. So here's a 16th century bishop of Salisbury who writes that he heard from his friend, the Archbishop of Florence, that if a mouse or any other beast happens to eat the sacrament through negligence of keeping, let the keeper through whose negligence it happened be enjoined to penance for 40 days. And if it be possible, let the mouse be taken and burnt and let his ashes be buried in or about the altar. So essentially the mouse becomes kind of like a container for the host. But he says, you know, other people think you should really just draw the entrails of the mouse and make the offending keeper take it as 
the Eucharist. Wow. <laughs> Mouse guts. Yeah. Yeah. Eh. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, so like clearly the, you know, there's this con huge concern about like the mice, you know, what happens next or like how irresponsible would it, would it be to like allow the mouse to eat the consecrated host because it, yeah. it can, it, you know, it, it's, it's really consecrated. It's really the, the body of Christ inside the mouse, which is an overturning right. of all sorts of things. And of course, then yeah. these, the radical Protestants would say like, you're kidding. No, 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 no. It was never transformed to begin with. So right. no biggie. Right. And then they would get caught out for saying such a thing for discounting right. that. Absolutely. That story reminds me of the way some people treat the flag worship in America uh, mm -hmm. is extended to all these degrees where like right. there's things you're not supposed to do. And it's, you know, like you can't let this. And, and then there's like, you know, you can burn it, but like only like to dispose of a ratty flag. Can't just throw it in the trash. This idea that somehow the symbol right. like magically contains something, yeah, that it is it needs special treatment. Yeah, and I mean mice. Obviously, there were mice everywhere. I mean, the sort of the the evidence for the pervasiveness of mice in monasteries is how many monks owned cats, right? And like how much sort of attention to their cats monks tended to pay. And I found this really interesting. Um, this is from Irish law, evidently, um, that in the, um, there was an entire set of laws basically related to cats. I don't speak Irish, so I'm probably going to get this wrong, but it's called the cats the cat sections. Um, and there are these fines attached to stealing or injuring or otherwise harming a a person's cat and the penalties were ranked according to the cat's ability. So if the cat was really good at not only purring, but also keeping its owner's house and grain stores free of mice, then it was worth three cows. That's a lot of cows for one cat. <laughs> That's a lot of cows. Yeah. But if it was only good at purring, the penalty was lower. So like my cat, who's a house cat, who's never, well, no, that's not quite true. He did once catch a mouse. He was really disconcerted what to do with it. So he showed it to me. And uh, I, I think like that idea that, but the idea that like a cat is a very useful animal to have around suggests that mice are everywhere, you know, and, and you've got to control them somehow. So pest control, medieval pest control cats. Yeah. Or that's uh, one of I them. mean, that's true in the, like, <laughs> The, the sort of the entries about mice and rats in the early modern natural histories have long sections on how to catch and kill them in ways that they don't for yeah. most other animals, right? Because like, that's the, yeah. the thing that everyone wants to know is like, tell me about the different kinds of mousetraps. Uh, like, I, we, need to, we need to worry about that. I think mice and rats have uh, like shaped some of the furniture, right? Like styles in furniture from these periods because our, our cats, we have a lot of cats. And if there's a mouse in the open in our house, it will not survive. But there are always mice in our house because modern houses are built for mice. We have all these like kitchen cabinets. Mm -hmm. The cats can't get in. The mice can get in. Mm -hmm. The cats can't get at them. So the mice just run under mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. and then the cat can't catch it. So yep. 
I think you see a lot of furniture that is, it's got feet, it's up off the ground, you know, because it lets the cat get at the mouse. So if you have a clean mm -hmm. floor all the way up to the walls, yep. your cat, I mean, like, it's very, it's tricky for a mouse to get in and around there because the cat's going to get them. I had never thought of that, but also, you know, stone walls with stone baseboards and no, like, yep. open joints. Much harder to build a mouse hole. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, getting rid of mice was a concern all the way back in antiquity. And there's actually a, a wonderful farmer's manual from the 10th century from Byzantium called the Geoponica. And there's a whole section dedicated to getting rid of pests, mostly farm pests. They do mention house mice. They say um, that you should just mix some barley meal with black hellebore, um, Christmas rose which is quite poisonous oh, yeah. and you can, you can poison them that way. But the solution for field mice is like ingenious and also kind of sad. You block their nest holes with oleander leaves. So oleander is a poisonous plant and the and they have to chew mice their way are out. so desperate. Yeah. Well, they're so desperate. Like you, you block the nest while the babies are in it and the parents are away. And then the parents are so desperate to get to the babies that they come back and, you know, eat the oleander and then they die. So, or you can write a spell, but the author of the book says, I don't think the spells work as well. <laughs> <laughs> only in Ireland, only in Ireland. Only if it's like Ireland, really good verse. Right. Uh, so yeah, the, exactly. the strangest way to get rid of mice and rats that I found is this idea that if you take, if you, you can take a rat or a, uh, a mouse and you starve it and you only feed it other rats and mice. So eventually it becomes a cannibal, uh, you know, a, a through and through cannibal, as it were, with a taste for nothing else. And you so carefully train this, these things to be cannibals and then you let them loose and they just go down and they just, they kill all the other mice, rats. I mean, as a theory, it's pretty good, right? Like, I mean, there actually are sort of pest control strategies now in the 21st century that rely on genetic modification that essentially work that way that like you basically release a, a killer version of the organism out into the population and it and it decimates the, the sure population i just but... i have this vision of like cages of like specially trained rats being carefully developed and maybe sold at a great cost to go out and like there is something called right. a cat that will do that too. <laughs> exactly. I mean, maybe that's what rat catchers were hoping to do. You know, this sort of profession that develops in the early modern period of like going yeah. around and not just not just like killing rats, but catching them, caging them, training them to do tricks, selling them as food. Like there was a whole rat industry. So that by the time you get to the 19th century, Queen Victoria has like an official uh, rat catcher on her staff. And rat catchers are, they don't get a lot, they don't get a lot of respect. Kind of run across some evidence that it was a, a career open to those with mental disabilities, right? Among other things, mm -hmm. being a rat catcher, which mm -hmm. then, you know, carries mm -hmm. a stigma with it as well. Yeah. And it's funny, I mean, yes, they are called rat catchers, but as you said, rats and mice being kind of a continuous category and the medieval mind, you get a lot of discussion specifically of mice as sort of domestic pests or monastic pests getting into the 
cabinet and eating the Eucharistic consecrated wafers, etc. Not a whole lot of discussion of rats per se in medieval literature, which is interesting given the fact that the black rat, Rattus Rattus, has often been basically the the culprit in the story that we tell ourselves about how the Black Death spread through Europe. So these rats, you know, uh, carried fleas and the fleas would infest the rats with plague and then jump from their dying rat hosts onto human beings. And the story for many, many years has been that essentially the Yersinia pestis, the, the, the plague, spread via rats and that's why it was so persistent in cities um, and places with poor public sanitation where the rats were eating whatever was dumped out in the street. That's been the story. But recently, in the last 10 years, biologists and, and archaeologists have begun to suggest otherwise, that actually it wasn't rats. It wasn't ratus ratus, the black rat. Can you guess what animal they're blaming now? And it's not like oh, are they blaming another animal? Because I, I, I like the the revisionist stories that I've come across suggest that you once it trans once it goes from uh, animal to human, right? So it is a zoonotic originally like zoonotic that you don't need uh-huh. you don't need any animal except the fleas, right? To transmit right. as fast as right. they got. So what's the animal? So. I've heard that story too, and that seems more plausible than the one that these Norwegian scientists published um, in a peer-reviewed study in 2015 that it was a giant gerbil, that there were giant gerbils running around Europe. And I mean, it is true. Another study that was published more recently, I think 2018, shows that the black rat actually declined really severely in Europe after the sort of fall of the Roman Empire that like rats basically traveled around Europe by merchants in ships and on merchant convoys. And so when trade died off with the fall of the Roman Empire in Western Europe, particularly, suddenly you start seeing a lot fewer rat skeletons in archaeological deposits. So the rats kind of died down. And then they came back in the 14th century, you start seeing, actually in the 13th century, you start seeing an uptick of rats, but you don't get the plague for another 150 years after the beginning of the rat population growth. Nobody in the early modern period, like, actually thought that rats were, you know, a communicator directly in in the way that they have been blamed since, right? Nobody thought that, even though the reputation of the rat was still pretty low, right? It's not like, you know, they... They they blame the rat for many things, and but not the the scientist from whom the plague is named Yersin, right? Who gave us Yersinius pestis? Uh-huh. He's the one yeah. who started blaming the rats because, and and it wasn't he didn't set out to sort of like come up with an epidemiology. He just was looking for Yersinia, uh, you know, pestis, and he like was testing animals, and he said like, hey, look, the rats have it. And then uh-huh. everyone's like, oh, rats, that's how it's communicated. Hmm. But, yeah. But in fact, it think... might people. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Like, it, it does. <laughs> we still we still kind of blame the animals for animal-based diseases, right? The way people act about bats in your house is like, they're going to yeah. carry everything. 
right? Like they will bring you the disease or raccoons or like as if these animals are somehow like greater reservoirs of disease than we are, <laughs> which is not yeah. true. I mean, I guess I can think of a few diseases where that might actually be the case. Rabies, possibly anthrax. Possibly anthrax. That's my list. I mean, rabies is the one where you think, well, any mammal can get rabies, right? So any animal that you run into could have rabies. Could have Bats do live in colonies. They tend to get things and pass them around. So I guess if there's rabies, the bats are like, you know, like, I guess there's, they're slightly more likely to have rabies. But on the other hand, you can usually tell if an animal has rabies, their, their behavior changes. Yeah. So anyway, well, and I if just, you think you about know, like it's... more recent, more recent epidemics that have been blamed on animals, I mean, we'd have to start with COVID nineteen, which, you know, first the poor pangolins were getting the finger pointed at them. I don't even know what a pangolin was, or I didn't know what a pangolin was until until I until it up. COVID, right? Yeah. Until COVID, so maybe it's raised pangolin awareness. And I don't think they had, you know, in Western. European culture, I don't think they had any awareness of pangolins in the Middle Ages or Renaissance. But then then it was bats, right? Didn't, it, didn't we go from pangolins to bats? I can't remember. They're still blaming it on Something, some animal. Some, yeah. And then, some animal. And then you get all of these diseases in Africa that get seem to originate from Africa that get blamed on essentially our closest genetic cousins, the great apes, or on monkeys, for example. Or on monkeys, um, yeah. Like the monkeypox. Yeah. But, but in the end, it's not the monkeys or the bats or the pangolins that are giving, like, seeking to infect us with the disease. It's the way we interact with these animals and their environments. So if a disease passes from you know, an ape population into the human population, it's probably because people are going out and hunting bushmeat and, and killing apes for human consumption. And the whole wet market theory for COVID is that, you know, you have all of these different animals gathered in high concentration around people. And what are they doing there? The people are not there to appreciate the animals. This is not a petting zoo, right? They're there to eat the, right. to get the they're, animals yeah. and, and make them into food. And you'll read stuff now about how, like, the more pressure we put on wild environments and the more wild animals we force into contact with ourselves, the more zoonotic diseases there are going to be. But ultimately, you know, COVID-19 does not need a pangolin. It passes from person to person. And, you know, you're probably Just right. Fine. The, the Black Death did not need a giant gerbil or a black rat to, right. to transmit. Uh, I mean, it... It needed fleas. Sometimes it needed fleas. Sometimes it didn't, right? I mean, it certainly, like, the super fast kind could go from person to person. So. Right. It was uh, a respiratory. It passed by basically uh, microparticles that people coughed out. It sounds sort of familiar to me for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's still a pretty scary disease, the Black Plague, because it's apparently all of the reservoirs out there are genetic descendants of the of the actual plague that was in Europe in the uh, 14th century. And it mo mutates very slowly, so it hasn't changed that much. And even today, if you get it, there's a good chance that you will die before they figure out what you have and treat it, right? So like we can treat it, but if you, you know, like if you're not in a good, you know, if you're not in a place with a really good medical treatment and a lot of very, you know, mm -hmm. good epidemiologists, 
you could die before they arrive at the conclusion that you have the plague because it's so it can be so fast yeah, it's, it's a fast moving disease yeah so um yeah. if you've been camping and hiking in the rocky mountains and uh come across certain small rodents keep your distance because they Cause those they are have the black plague reservoir yes. populations so they're not mice and rats they're like cute little ground squirrels but just avoid them the mice right. will give you hantavirus, so avoid them too. Uh, yeah. So back to the rats. So they didn't know that they, you know, that they had potentially any role in in the Black Plague. But that story about the venomous teeth and how, like, oh, the, if the mice eat the the grass, then the cows are going to die when they eat it. That was a really common belief that rats and mice had just venomous bites, poison bites, huh. which is, yeah. I think, only true of the shrew among those rodents, but. Huh. Yeah, so they had a venomous bite and that they would infect things they ate in ways that caused disease. So they had this idea that if you ate a piece of bread that a mouse had been nibbling on, you would get you would get something. It's not clear what huh. references I come across have no modern translation for what they're what they're finding. And it's probably just it's just part of this idea that the they're somehow um contaminating the stuff that they feed from. Uh-huh. A sort of contamination theory of disease being prevalent in the yes. in the period right. too. Yeah, like in, infecting the area, infecting the bread, infecting like whatever it is. But then, sort of ironically, mice are used to cure a lot of things from open wounds. Right, you just take a mouse, slice it open, put it on your wound. Everything's gonna be fine. They'll cure warts. Oh, great! Um, mice mice can like promote hair growth, so they're cures for baldness. And if you have nerve pain and you eat mouse dung, it will apparently get better. I would not recommend any of these these cures, but it is interesting that you get long discussions of how to trap and kill mice, followed by long discussions of how to use all these mice to cure things. Uh, yeah. Longer lists. Most animals in the natural histories have a section on, I mean, they'll, they'll talk about what they could be used to cure. Because there's mm -hmm. this idea that all the animals, of course, were put on Earth for humans to use. So, like, they, they each got to cure something. But but mice have an awful lot of different things that they were used for. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, as far as it goes, you know, the medieval understanding of the mouse is, is like the understanding of a lot of fantastic and real beasts. The sort of twofold, like, on the one hand, a kind of a rough cut natural history understanding like we kind of think this is how mice come into being and this is how you can combat them like this sort of like practical but also like kind of kooky based not so much on observation as on inherited sort of truisms and then on the other hand there's this whole like metaphorical sense of the mouse or the rat in this theological sense of you know the debate over the eucharist and then there's that wonderful story from Pierce Plowman about the parliament of rats and mice. You're the literary scholar, but I'm just going to like tell you that this is one of my favorite stories. It's all the mice and the rats get together, um, but they're definitely, the rats are definitely the leaders here. They're bigger, they're stronger, and they're smarter. And they have a, um, they have a Congress basically because there's this cat that's been catching them and killing them. And they're really, put out about this and they decide that they're going to put a collar on the cat with a bell on it so that they'll know that the cat is coming 
so that they can run away. This is one of the ingenious rats who comes up with this idea of belling the cat, hence the expression. And the rats are all like, yeah, yeah. And I kind of have like this cartoon, the cartoon rats, like all going, yeah, man, that's a great idea. And then the mice are like, um, excuse me, who's going to put the collar on the cat? You know, and that's the problem. Nobody wants to volunteer to put a collar on this cat. So the mouse says, basically, we kind of need the cat. The cat kind of keeps our social order stable. We need an overlord. And you rats, you couldn't rule yourselves. I'm just going to lie low. That's how I'm going to avoid the cat. I'm not like, don't bell the cat. Just accept the order as it is. Cats eat mice and rats and go about your business and try not to get killed. Like that's the mouse's solution. And this is good. Like this is, this is how things should be. Except the natural order. And the cat obviously here is a monarch or a ruler who's rapacious. The mouse even says, yes, and... it's really, really bad to have a kitten as a king. Yeah, if you're a mouse, for sure. <laughs> what else What else do we need to say? Oh, the rat king. We haven't touched on the rat king. So there's this German term, the rat king. England, this reference, they think, well, a, the rat king is clearly just an extra large rat that is the king of the rats. Uh -huh. so somewhere, rats are taking things to the rat king, and they have their little society, and there's the, the extra large king of the rats. But then there's these pictures of something else, which is a rat king, which is rats with their tails all, you know, a group of rats whose tails have become tangled up. Even though they are occasionally discovered, there's still a lot of question about like, is this just, you know, is it a, is it a hoax? Did someone tie these rats together? You know, is yeah. this just a story? But apparently there, there are cases where rats do get tangled up together. To me, it's, again, going back to what we've talked about before, that sort of like blending of the monstrous and the workaday, the, the totally normal. So you have this animal that's as common as mud. There are rats and mice everywhere. You're just trying to get rid of them. And then suddenly you have this sort of monstrous manifestation of that same animal. To me, that's where the rat king sits. Are there, like, I can't think of any medieval sources that, discuss the Rat King, but is that something you find in early modern literature or natural history? I guess it seems to emerge like 16th century. And again, the tendency is to see the Rat King as just a like a large rat and then to use it for various purposes. So the Puritans will say that the, the Rat King is the Pope, like what, uh, whatever, right? Right. <laughs> it's just a kind of a negative, bigger rat. It does come back to that idea that like a monstrosity through multiplicity, right? Which is the thing that that makes them that makes mice and rats fantastical right is there right. is their ability to multiply ab above like everything some people thought that mice could get pregnant just by licking salt it uh, kind of seems that or, way you know <laughs> or and pl plenty says that they're you know like oh they're, they're they're born pregnant you can dissect a pregnant mouse and the babies inside the mom already are pregnant interesting anything to explain it why do we have so many of them even though rabbits are really the, the rodents that get credit for being prolific breeders, I think a rat's reproductive cycle is under a month, you know, which is why they make great lab animals. Because if you're trying to breed generations to do multi-generational studies, you can keep a, a lineage going on a relatively tight schedule in the lab. As yeah. we were doing the research for this, and I also thought about the rat king, then my mind logically went to the next thing which is the mouse king 
you may know that I'm pretty into ballet. And of course, an annual ritual for all of us people in the ballet world is the Nutcracker. And my most coveted role in the Nutcracker is the Mouse King. I'm actually like putting my name in the hat to be the Mouse King this year. Don't know so if that'll work tell out. tell me, why do you want to be I'll the Mouse King? Probably... Oh, it's just like fun acting, silly, you know, you get to do a sword fight and wear a giant mouse head. But um, but no, <laughs> not one mouse head, three. So in the original ah. story by E.T.A. Hoffman, the story that, that gave rise to the Nutcracker Ballet was written around the turn of the 19th century, so in the early 1800s. He writes this story and the not even really the antagonist because the there's some sympathy for the mice in the original story but this character the the mouse king who is the son of frau mouse rinks has three heads he's a three-headed mouse and that idea of a kind of monstrously large three-headed mouse i was sure that i would be able to find somewhere in the literature on hoffman a like, where did he get this? It was in, was it in German folklore going back to the Middle Ages? But no, apparently it just came from his own fevered imagination. But I really kind of love that, the idea of this tiny little animal that is so small and harmful to the things that we own, but not harmful directly to our physical bodies, at least as far as anyone knew before germ theory. But the idea of it encompassing in its tiny little body all of this terror and all of this potential yeah. for horror they were really on to something there well i mean the rat the rat king is essentially a multi-headed rat since it's rats tangled up together so i mean yeah. maybe it's this fevered imagination or maybe you know it's this idea monstrosity through multiplicity it's like that's that's where yeah. you go with yeah. like, you want to make them monstrous just add more heads all right. Well, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground with these mice and rats, you know, from the Eucharist to the Black Plague to modern scientific method. It's They're a pretty all-purpose animal, it turns out. Yes, they are. Real? In addition to being great for telling stories, then and now, right? <laughs> mice are great protagonists yeah. for any kind of story of the underdog. Yeah, as Walt Disney could tell you. All right, then. All right. Until next time. We'll Welcome. say farewell, and we're looking forward to the next fantastic feast. If you have questions or comments or suggestions about future episodes, we would love to hear from you. Just go to realfantasticfeasts.com and you will find lots of ways to join the conversation. Mm -hmm.